0: Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. And good morning. It is Friday, July 15th, and you've joined us for the very first episode of Public Policy This
1: Week here on KYMN Radio.
0: This is a brand new show dedicated to the honest, frank, and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into a public policy issue, and we'll have guests on the show who are experts in the field.
2: We're going to stay away from the politics of an issue to the greatest extent possible, and instead concentrate on research on data-driven findings and facts that help us to arrive at smart, comprehensive, integrative public policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in
0: society. Some weeks, we'll cover township or municipal-level issues, Other weeks, we'll look at county or or even state-level challenges and opportunities, and we'll even explore federal-level issues. Everything is fair game on this show.
2: We also have a unique approach in who will host this show. We've created a bullpen of hosts who represent the political spectrum, from center-right to center-left. It will be our job as hosts to ask the hard questions of our policy expert guests to offer you, the listener, knowledge on these issues so you can form your own ideas on the best way forward.
0: It is our greatest hope among this group of hosts that our civil, thoughtful dialogue about very important public policy issues with real policy experts will serve as a way to convey those policy ideas to you. We will concentrate on policy, not politics. In many ways, this show will reflect how things used to be when
2: Republicans and Democrats were able to have these meaningful policy discussions and were able to arrive at consensus on how to solve difficult conundrums.
0: For this inaugural show, your host will be me, John Olson, a retired commander in the U.S. Navy, adjunct faculty at Carleton College, author, and former candidate for the Minnesota Senate.
2: And I'm co-host Joe Merovchik, retired police officer, adjunct faculty in criminal justice, and former candidate for the Minnesota House of Representatives. It probably won't surprise you when we say that mass shootings have become a rampant challenge in our society. We are averaging more than one mass shooting each day in America.
0: Mass shootings are defined as involving four or more people, including the victims and the shooter. We've all seen the television coverage of the recent shootings in Uvalde, Texas and, sadly, elsewhere across America.
2: Our guest today is Dr. James Densley, who serves as a professor and department chair of the School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice at Metro State University, part of the Minnesota State System. He is also co-founder of the Violence Project Research Center, best known for its DOJ-funded mass shooter database.
0: Dr. Densley has received global attention across the media for his work on street gangs, criminal networks, violence, and policing. He is the author or co-author of seven books, including The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic, which was the winner of the 2022 Minnesota Book Award. Dr.
2: James Densley has published over 50 peer-reviewed articles in leading scientific journals and over 150 book chapters, essays, and other works and outlets such as the Los Angeles Times, Time Magazine, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Dr. James Densley is originally from the U.K. and earned his doctorate in sociology from the University of Oxford.
0: Dr. James Densley, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thank you for bringing our literally very first guest on this brand new show.
1: It's, it's an honor. Um, thank you for having me, and I can't believe I'm your first guest. And <laughs> let, let's, let's hope that uh, it's, a, it's a success, that everyone keeps coming back. So, thank you.
2: Uh, Dr. Densley, Union Research Partner, Dr. Jill Peterson from Hamlin University, have been on just about every major television program discussing this important issue. And we've read many of your op-eds written after just too many mass shootings in our country. Welcome, Dr. Densley.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's, um, I think it shows just how much the public is crying out for answers to this public policy issue. And we have been engaged with uh, you know, media on both sides of the uh, spectrum, and uh, we've been in conversations on both sides of the aisle. And I think that's why maybe I'm a good guest for this show because <laughs> we try and uh, really stick to the facts and really stick to the data and really emphasize the public policy here and not the politics.
0: And th- and that's the core idea behind this show. Uh, Dr. Denzley, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, I think a little background may be in order here as we get started on our topic for today. Uh, what was it that brought you and Dr. Jill Peterson together to study this issue of mass shootings? And could you tell us a little bit about the methodologies that you use to conduct your research and gather the data.
1: Yeah, so... Um- Gillian and I were colleagues. Uh, We were both uh, professors, both in the criminology field, studying violent crime, similar research interests. And the truth of the matter is we were just growing tired of the daily drumbeat of gun violence and particularly mass shootings that we kept seeing on the news. And what we also started to notice is how politicized that issue had become that you would have people coming on the news and saying, well, it had to just be about mental health or it had to just be about guns. And Jill and I looked at each other and sort of earnestly said, well, can't it be both? And not only that, we were really frustrated with the lack of empirical evidence, really. A lot of this seemed to be conjecture and opinion, but none of it was grounded in facts. You know, could we say, well, how many of these people actually had a mental illness? And how were these people getting access to their firearms? And no one really knew. So we decided to build a database of mass shooters. And it started as a volunteer project. We had students at Hamlin University and a few at Metro State in the early days um, who agreed to be part of this project. And we, um, we just started with an Excel spreadsheet and began to fill it in. Um, and it was a pretty basic project to begin with but what really accelerated it was when we received some funding from the national institute of justice and that enabled us to do two things one really double down on the database so we were able to then code each mass shooter who'd killed four or more people in a public space over around 200 different life history variables so Mm -hmm. we're looking at everything from their childhood all the way through to adulthood to how they got access to firearms whether they played violent video games whether they were using psychiatric medications all the uh, theories that are out there we were trying to test and then the other piece of this was we actually interviewed mass shooters we interviewed incarcerated mass shooters who had perpetrated these crimes we interviewed their family members and people that knew them we also interviewed first responders survivors victims families We spent time in the communities where these shootings had occurred. So we really tried to come at this from a sort of 360-degree perspective to get it from all angles to understand the phenomena.
2: Dr. Densley, you consolidated not only the research, but also your findings into what became the Violence Project Research Center and a book titled The Violence Project, which has proven prescient, but also highly informative when it comes to mass shootings. Can you please clarify for our guests the key difference between mass shootings and violence more broadly in American society. What is it exactly that you are studying here? How is it different from the study of other types of criminal activities?
1: That's a great question because there's a big debate right now about what even is a mass shooting. Um, In our research, we followed what had been a sort of longstanding definition, particularly followed by the uh you know fbi and other academic researchers which is it was four or more people killed in a public space a mass public shooting and that's usually what we think about when we think about uvaldi or we think about uh, highland park most recently or buffalo these types of cases but um at the same time there is daily gun violence where f- multiple people get shot and it's not like those cases and the question is well what what qualifies and what makes this different i think it's important to recognize that a mass public shooting is a rare event the they although we feel like they're happening more frequently which they are and that we hear about them a lot in the media they are still a very small percentage of everyday gun violence um, you know in the la- in 2020 the last year we have good data uh, there were over 45,000 gun deaths in the United States. 25,000 of those were suicides.
2: Mm.
1: 20,000 of them were homicides. Mm. And of those homicides, mass shootings represent maybe 1%. So, it, we're talking about a small slice of everyday gun violence across the United States. But and I think this is what's important. Mass shootings really resonate with the public because they shake us to our core. There's a sense of, I can't go to the grocery store, or I can't go to school, or I can't go to a place of worship because that threat of violence is present. And of course, not only that, they claim such a number of lives that it's almost incomprehensible of why somebody would do this. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to study it. It was to try and... Make sense of what appears to be a senseless crime, and very unique in the grand scheme of gun violence across the United
0: States. So, this specific slice, this mass shooting slice, this is not, uh, you know, youth gangs exchanging gunfire and people get hit. It's not uh, domestic violence, uh, m- you know, murder between spouses or or cohabitants. Uh, it is a usually in a public place. Oftentimes, you know, the victims of the shooter have, they don't know the shooter at all. Uh, somebody has carried this out in a, in a specific way uh, to, to create maximum damage in a very public setting. And I, and I think we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, James, could you tell us what you and Dr. Peterson learned in the course of these studies? Who, who are the people who generally carry out these mass shootings?
1: Well, the the first thing i would say is that they they uh they are men and boys and i think that's one of the biggest uh takeaways that many people latch on to which is that 98 percent of the mass shooters in our database are male there's only four women out of 180 in the database uh and two of those women by the way were working in concert with uh men so This is a a male phenomena, but to some degree, so is homicide in general, and so is violent crime in general. So as shocking as that might seem, it perhaps is not uh, very helpful thinking about what are the policy implications more broadly. But I think beyond that, this is the most important takeaway, is that mass shooters are not them, they are us. And what I mean by that is, before anybody picks up the gun and perpetrates the crime. They are somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's classmate, colleague, neighbor. And that was a real aha moment for us in the course of this research. Because when we were interviewing the mass shooters themselves or their family members, sitting down with the family members of mass shooters, when they're showing you baby photos of these individuals, was this moment where you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, this person is a human being. They look just like everybody else, and they went to school just like everybody else. So what is it that happened to them in the course of their lives that got them to the point of murder? And this is actually a really important piece from a prevention standpoint, because we struggle to comprehend that the person standing in front of us could ever perpetrate a crime like this, because it seems so incomprehensible. That for us, though, is the key is you have to recognize that a mass shooter is right there in front of us. And if we don't pay attention to the warning signs, if we don't notice when that person's struggling in life or they're beginning to start to show the signs that something is wrong, then they go down that pathway to violence. And that's what gets them to the point when a mass shooting occurs. And so they tend to be men and boys But the key thing here is they are not outsiders, they're insiders. They're the people that we know, and that's really important.
0: So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is Public Policy This Week, and we're your hosts, Joe Moravchuk and John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. James Densley, co-founder of the Violence Project Research Center, and we're discussing the epidemic of mass shootings in the United States and what, if anything, can be done to stop them.
2: Dr. Densley, as you know, I'm a retired law enforcement officer. I've seen way too much violence in the performance of my duties. I was fortunate not to come across a mass shooter in my career. Can you tell us about the backgrounds of these individuals? What is it they have in common?
1: Yeah, so sometimes people want to find a profile of a mass shooter. But what we find instead is that there's really a pathway to a mass shooting. And the pathway is rooted in early childhood trauma. So these are individuals who've experienced terrible trauma early in life that's never really been resolved. And what I mean by trauma is this can be uh, physical or sexual violence. This can be domestic violence in the home. It could be the suicide of a parent. Um, It could be extreme forms of bullying for that person. And I want to stress this because it's important. Millions of people across the world experience early childhood trauma. They never go on to perpetrate mass shooting. So it's not causal. But there's something about that trauma and the fact that it is unresolved that I think layers a foundation for what happens next in the lives of these individuals. Now, what happens next is that practically all of these mass shooters reach an identifiable crisis point in their lives. It's a crisis that overwhelms their usual coping mechanisms. And it tends to be a suicidal crisis. You have to get to a point in life where you no longer care if you live or die to be able to actually perpetrate a mass shooting, because a mass shooting is intended to be a final act. Mm-hmm. It only ever ends in one of three ways. Many mass shooters die on the scene because they take their own lives. They are literally suicides. Or they are killed by police on the scene because of the nature of the uh, crime that they are committing. Or they're apprehended and they spend the rest of their lives in prison. So and it's a social death in that sense. So this is intended to be a final act. It's intended to be witnessed. It's intended to be a spectacle. So you get to a point where you're so angry and frustrated and lost in life that that's your mentality. And we see that time and time again in the lives of these individuals. Now, if you get to that point in life, you start to ask questions. Why do I feel that way? Why? Why am I having these feelings? Why do I feel like I'm not getting my do in life? What mass shooters do? is they study other mass shooters to find answers to their questions. And they literally are identifying with these people because they are just like them. So you get to a point in life, you no longer care if you live or die, you're angry, you're frustrated, and then you Google it effectively. And unfortunately, you go tumbling down the rabbit hole and you become radicalized into the sense that this violence is a solution to your problems. And... We see that as a very common through line, particularly at the moment with the rise of the Internet and social media. And then finally, the sort of fourth piece of this puzzle, this pathway, is access to firearms. Because at the end of the day, you can't have a mass shooting without a gun. But why this is important is because it's during that time that I've just described, the crisis point, the radicalization, the studying other shooters that's the moment where these people are getting access to the gun it's right when they're in crisis that people are purchasing the weapons or they're borrowing and stealing them from loved ones in the home because they've not been securely uh, locked up and so there's something there from a policy standpoint around how do we ensure that people who are a risk to self and others are not in possession of a firearm at that moment
0: so Dr. Densley, uh, that you paint a, a really uh, interesting picture with that, that summarization, they study these other shooters. Uh, I mean, what is it exactly they're trying to accomplish with this sort of final act? I mean is it, it almost sounds like they're trying to create a theater of the, for the end of their life. Can, can you talk a little bit more specifically about that?
1: Yeah, that's. Um, I think that's a piece of this. Actually, for not all mass shooters, some mass shootings occur when you have uh, some sort of grievance. Uh, let's say it's a workplace shooting. You're angry at the boss. You get a gun. You go back. You kill the boss. You kill the employees. There's a very sort of clear through line. This goes. This shooting.
0: goes back to the old days when we used to talk about somebody going postal, right?
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and and so. There's examples of that with, within the, uh, the data, but usually what's actually happening here is somebody has a grievance, but it's a little bit more unspecified. And instead, there's a sense of, I don't feel like I fit in in the world. And perhaps there's somebody to blame for that. So it's a self-hatred that's then projected outward toward others. And it's projected outward. And those others might be classmates at school. They might be um, racial ethnic minorities like we saw with the Buffalo case. It might be women. Uh, if there's, It might be religious groups. If someone targets a place of worship, um, it, there's just a sense of I want the world to feel the pain and anger that I feel. And here's the real piece about this is that. These mass shooters are largely anonymous. They feel anonymous. They feel like nobody knows who they are. Nobody cares who they are. Nobody pays attention to them. And so what better way to make sure that everybody's watching and that everybody finally listens to what they've got to say or sees what they're doing than to perpetrate a crime like this? So there's an element of wanting the world to witness the act. And that's why it is a performance. A mass shooting is intended to be seen. It's a performance. And uh, there's some planning that goes into that performance. And then there's the spectacle of the crime itself. And then in turn, if we're not careful, we give the mass shooters what they want. Because sometimes the way we talk about mass shootings in the media can glorify their actions to such an extent that if you're fame-seeking we're actually providing them with that fame. And I think we've learned lessons over time not to put the faces of mass shooters on the front cover of Time magazine, for instance, because we might be giving them exactly what they want, and that can inspire others to follow suit.
2: Dr. Densley, from law enforcement training and experience, we know that prevention is a much better strategy than having to respond to criminal activity in the first place. Prevention of mass shootings would certainly be a better approach than responding to one in progress. What kind of warning signs should we be looking for in these mass shooters? What can we do to intercede before someone reaches this crisis point?
1: So we took a pretty deep dive into this, actually, in the course of our research. So we we looked at what threat assessment professionals call leakage. And it's sort of an odd term for your listeners to hear, but it really means that the information is spilling out of somebody, hence the term leakage. And what we see is in about half of all the mass shooters in our database, there is some sort of evidence in advance of a communication of intent to do harm. And that communication often is verbal. It's somebody actually saying it out loud that they are thinking about violence. Or it can be posted on a social media, and there can be a letter that's written or something else that, again, is communicating this intent. There's a question then of what do we do with that. So there's an adage that you've probably heard, which is if you, know, if you uh, see something, say something. But there are barriers to people saying something. The first barrier is people dismiss this type of uh, leakage. They'll say, well, it can't possibly be you know, my brother, or it can't possibly be my classmate or my son that's thinking this way. It's no big deal. And so we kind of dismiss it. There's also a sense of we don't necessarily know who to report it to. So if you see something, say something, but say something to whom? And how do we say that thing? We had a parent tell us once, which was really powerful, you know, what would you have had me do? Call 911 on my own son, Now, with hindsight, the answer to that would have been, yes, Mm -hmm. you should. But um, I think the truth is she was getting at this point of, well, are there other interventions out there? Because at that moment, my son hasn't committed a crime. They're just telegraphing that there's something wrong with them. We need to reach out and help them. Also, in school settings, young people don't want to be a snitch. You hear this a lot as well, is they're a little bit worried about what's going on. But they'll say, but I don't want to be the one that gets that person in trouble. So a lot of this is about breaking down barriers, ensuring that everybody feels confident that they know exactly where to report to and that there'll be an appropriate response to it. And an appropriate response may be a law enforcement response if there's real capability there and someone has access to a gun and it's a credible threat. Sometimes it might be a mental health intervention. It might be an opportunity to get someone connected with some other services or outreach. Or it might just be mentoring for that uh, person to get them through that moment. Because a crisis is really a moment in time. Uh, We talk about somebody in crisis as being like a balloon ready to pop. And all you've got to do is let a little bit of air out. And so some of that de-escalation can really go a long way. And sometimes it's the smallest thing, just a simple act of kindness that can get someone through that moment and, uh, and, and help them so that they don't continue on that pathway to violence.
2: You're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is Public Policy This Week, and we're your hosts, Joe Moravchick and John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. James Densley, co-founder of the Violence Project Research Center And we're discussing the epidemic of mass shootings in the United States and what, if anything, can be done to stop them.
0: Uh, Dr. Denzel, let's continue with this uh, policy opportunities that we have to address mass shootings. We know we can't stop all mass shootings, uh, but what can we do in our local communities, in our counties, across the state of Minnesota, maybe nationally, uh, to reduce the number of mass shootings that actually happen? What, What does the research data actually tell us? What findings did you and Dr. Peterson come across with your work?
1: Yeah, the the good news with all this is it can feel hopeless when you're talking about mass shootings. You switch on the news, you see there's been yet another one. You feel like there's nothing we can do about this. One of the key things we found in the course of this research is that mass shootings are preventable. Um, There are so many opportunities for intervention and in turn prevention, but so often they are missed or, or they are lost. But we're very hopeful that we can use the research to help inform those policies and practices going forward. So what we do in the book is we actually structure solutions on three levels because we know that everybody's waiting for the magic act of Congress that's going to solve this problem overnight. And the truth of the matter is it's never going to come. There's not one magic you know the magic wand to be waved that's going to solve this and uh, a simple solution so what it really comes down to is actually layering solutions one on top of each other to get to a more perfect uh, end point so when i say three levels i say there's the societal level which is what i was just talking about that's the the kind of uh, policy coming through from the federal government for instance but then there's also things we can do as individuals and as institutions to solve this problem. So let me give an example. As an individual, right here, right now, if you're on this uh, radio uh, listening to my voice and you're a parent or a teacher or just a concerned citizen, what could you do to solve this problem? Number one, if you've got firearms in the home, safe storage, particularly if you also have a teenager in the home. School shooters are school children. And in our research, nearly all of them got access to a firearm through a family member. It was either because the firearm was not stored safely or because that family member literally gifted it to the child before they perpetrated the shooting. We see this in the most recent cases in Oxford, Michigan. And we see it also uh, with the shooting in Highland Park. Now, this is a, an example of something we can all kind of pledge to do right here, right now. It doesn't need an, uh, any legislation or anything else. And we can help uh, so, you know, save lives. I think another thing we can all pledge to do right here, right now, is just to look out for one another. If you've got a young boy uh, in your life who you know is struggling right now, check in with them. See if they need some help and support, some mentorship, some guidance. Now, I want to stress this: we don't just do it because we're trying to prevent a mass shooting. By the way, we're doing it because it's just the right thing to do. A lot of the solutions to mass shootings also help solve other problems, things like suicide, or bullying, or you know, a mental health crisis um, in our schools. So, these are simple steps that can be taken. To solve this problem I think the other piece then at the institutional level in our communities if you're thinking about schools or workplaces the same rules apply looking out for one another but at the same time training ourselves to do that the right way so we think of crisis intervention as like CPR Um, it saves lives Mm -hmm. and anyone can do it so Something as simple as knowing the warning signs of violence, what they look like, whether it's increased agitation or whether it's a losing touch with reality or somebody who's isolated and lonely. If that's a change in behavior from baseline, if that's something new, you know, yesterday they weren't like this. Today they are. That's a note to self that I need to check in and see what's going on. And then we can build systems in our communities to respond appropriately. We often say this to schools. You don't want the first time you're having a conversation with your local law enforcement officials to be in the midst of an emergency. The very first time you meet the police chief shouldn't be when there's a crisis. So building relationships with community partners, law enforcement, mental health providers, school districts, they should all be working in concert with one another so that in the event that there is somebody who is struggling, they know how best to support that person and get them connected to the help that they need. So these are all things that we can, we can do really with very little additional money and resources and policy. Um, we can kind of just start doing this right here, right now.
2: Thinking about the national level, are there policies at a national level that might help to deter these acts of mass violence?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you use the word deter there because I I believe there's a sense in some quarters that we can deter mass shootings by just fortifying our buildings and maybe having more armed personnel present to neutralize the threat. But one of the key findings of of our research is that mass shooters tend to be suicidal, and they intend for their shooting to be a final act. Meaning, they fully intend to die in the act. And we actually looked at this, we investigated this, we looked at the numbers with this. When there's an armed person present in the case of school shootings it actually tends to result in more fatalities and we think partly this is because if you know there's going to be an armed response you plan accordingly with more weapons and also you are intending to die in the act and so you too are going to die on the scene. And so there is a sense that having this type of response is not really a deterrent. Um, In some ways, it might be incentivizing for that person that they are specifically targeting that location because they know that that's how it's going to end. There's a solution to the problem right there. In terms of policies that we know could be very effective, on the one hand, you've got stuff around firearms, And we know that that's a really thorny issue because it's such a divisive issue in our our society. But I'm really speaking here just to the data, to what the research tells us. So we know that there's been an increase in recent years with the use of assault weapons in mass shootings. And I think there's two reasons for this. Number one is that these are very efficient, lethal weapons. But more importantly... Mass shooters study other mass shooters. I said that earlier. And if you want your performance to conform with what a mass shooting looks like, you follow the guidance of those past performances. And that might include using the same props that those performers have used, including assault rifles. So we see a copycat type of behavior, and it, and it just fuels the next mass shooting. So something around those assault rifles, I think would be really important to address, even though we know that that is a very divisive issue. Um, Recently, we're seeing younger mass shooters. So anything we can do to delay their access to a firearm, I think is really effective. So whether that is raising the age limits which is something that you know is is being discussed is being implemented or even things like wait periods or a permit to purchase before getting access to a firearm can also be very effective think about a wait period like this if you've ever you know tried to fire off an angry email to your boss (laughs) right and um And then you have that moment where you think, you know what, I'm just going to sit on this for a day before I hit send. Or I'm going to count to 10 before I hit send. A wait period to purchase a firearm is the equivalent of what I've just described. If you're angry and upset and intent on perpetrating a shooting and then you go to the gun shop and you can get access to that firearm immediately... Well, it's a much higher likelihood you're going to use it. Sometimes, counting to 10, the world looks a little bit different. And something like a wait period, I think, could have prevented a number of the mass shootings in our data. Because people were purchasing these, these firearms immediately before going out and using them. So there are other you know, policies in the area of firearms that I think could be very effective. But those are just a few of the examples.
0: Uh, Dr. Denzel, I want to follow up on a couple of things that, uh, that you had talked a, a little bit about. Uh, one was sort of uh, creating a, a, a sort of a harder target, like at a school, as an example. And earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, that it, it's our son, it's our brother, you know, it's our family members. So in that yeah. school setting for example I mean if we if we spend the uh, hundreds of billions of dollars nationally that would be needed to turn all of our schools and other other public inst- public places like that into a more fortified place uh, more resilient against a shooter you you still have the shooters living and working and going to school in those very environments they know the system and like you said it's a challenge for them to maybe beat the system as part of their uh, their performance, quote unquote. Is that something that, that that the research has shown or is there indicators in the data that that's, that would be true? Yeah, it,
1: this is actually a really important point, which is that it goes back to that earlier point that, that mass shooters are insiders, they're not really outsiders. And so not only do they know the systems, you know, it's not a surprise if to show up at a school building and think, oh, no, there's a metal detector and a school resource officer, because that kid has walked through that metal detector and passed that school resource officer every day. They do that every single day. This is not a surprise to them. But what it also speaks to is actually a a deeper issue with our public policy when it comes to things like school safety or workplace safety, which is a recognition that We need to be building relationships with the people who are right there in front of us. So we actually interviewed a school principal who um, was somebody who intervened in a potential mass shooting uh, for the book. And in this case, it was early in the morning. This was a school, by the way, that had a school resource officer. But that resource officer was just not present that day. They they were out on a professional development activity. This was a school that had all the security protocols they'd ran all the active shooter drills by all of you know they had cameras they had everything that you would expect a secure school to have but the student came to school it was still seven thirty in the morning. The opening bell hadn't rang yet. he went into the bathroom and he started to assemble his firearm and get ready to perpetrate this crime and it sent the school into a panic because somebody else spotted that student in the bathroom and saw the gun and they kind of fought for it. And the gun went off in the bath in the bathroom. This prompted the principal to run to that bathroom and talk that student down until law enforcement could arrive and, uh, deal with the scene. We spoke to that principal and he said, look, we had everything in place. He goes, but it was 7.30 in the morning. We hadn't even taken headcount yet. We had no idea who was in the building, where they were. The marching band was still on the field outside. He said, there's so many variables in the mix with this. But the thing that actually prevented that shooting from occurring was his relationship with the student. He said, I looked at that student. I told him, we're not going to do this today. I knew his name. I had a personal connection with him. And that was the key. It was the relationship. And this was something that really stuck with us, which is we need to do a much better job of thinking about how do we make people who feel unseen, seen in these places? Not from a deterrent standpoint of, well, we put cameras everywhere, and now you're definitely seen, but more in terms of, can we have smaller class sizes? Can we ensure that everybody has a counselor or a trusted adult in the building that they are willing and able to talk to? Can we feel like students are connected, that they have friends? All these things are safety mechanisms. We just don't think of them in that way. We don't put them in that same bucket. So that's really an important piece of this. It's how do we at the same time hold that, yes, security includes cameras and doors and backpacks and all the things that we're talking about, but it also includes counselors and smaller class sizes and peer mentoring and all the things that would make our schools a more inviting and welcoming space for our young people
0: i have one other follow-up question uh, you'd mentioned the highland park shooting earlier uh you'd also mentioned the the high velocity weapons uh, the, the assault style weapons they're really just semi-automatics uh, but they can have high capacity magazines and whatnot uh, and if you modify them, they can, they can fire almost like an automatic weapon, but they are just semi-automatics. The Highland Park shooting strikes me as something a little bit different than what we've typically seen in the mass shootings. Uh, and I know it happened just very recently, and I know you, you and Dr. Peterson are on the sh- different shows all the time. You're writing commentaries all the time. What was, a little, what was different? What struck you as different about the Highland Park shooting than what we've seen in the past?
1: Well, the, the thing that really stuck out to us, which I think in, to our mind was a first, was the way in which the, after the shooting had occurred, the shooter put on a, a disguise, they dressed as a woman, and then tried to flee the scene. And then they were driving to what appears to be a second location and then contemplating another mass shooting to then not go through with that, but to turn back around and then come back to the first location which is where they were then apprehended. So that idea of, as I mentioned before, most mass shooters are intending to die in the act or they are resigned to the fact that they won't get away with it. It's very rare that someone would put on a a disguise and try and get away with it essentially. Um, So that is something that is a little bit puzzling, but if you go back to the history of this person uh, prior, there's still a lot of commonalities that are very true of mm. all these other mass shooters. So for example, they had expressed suicidal and homicidal ideation. there would even been an intervention with that person earlier in their lives. It was around that same time, however, that the father supported their application to purchase a firearm. So it goes back to that earlier point I raised before, which is if you've got a young person in your life, who you know is in crisis and in struggling, that's not the time to be getting them access to a gun. And then the other thing about this is that they were telegraphing that violence in advance. So this was somebody who was posting a lot on social media. Uh, they had a kind of alias on social media. It was a, a, you know, a rap uh, artist. They were sort of uh, you know, this question of artistic expression. But really what they were focused on was uh, you know, this study of school shootings and mass shootings it's almost an obsession with other mass shootings and a large trail of breadcrumbs on social media about the violence that was going to come. These were all red flags and warning signs that, with hindsight, we wish we'd have been able to spot earlier and intervene. That was very common.
0: So one other follow up on that. Uh, the police had been called to that individuals residents multiple times for some very serious uh, issues with that the the young man who perpetrated the highland park shooting we hear some of the discussion on the policy side of these ideas of of red flag laws in your research is that an indicator where that red flag law might have been applicable along those lines or
1: yes it is we uh, we've looked at this at quite uh, a lot of detail actually The, the key as with all things in life, the devil's always in the details. The devil's always in the details. And so the challenge with these red flag laws, or extreme risk protection orders, as they are known, is how to truly implement them. Right. They may be in effect, but perhaps the knowledge of how to go about actually getting, for instance, a court order in order to be able to then Uh, get access to that person's firearms Uh, and then by the way it's a temporary injunction so once you demonstrate you're no longer in a crisis you can get them back but this is just again it goes back to that wait period piece it's a pause uh, while we can get you the help that you need but sometimes a lot of this is around the implementation of them but there's a lot of evidence from suicide prevention which tells us that uh, these uh, red flag laws are highly effective at providing people with that opportunity to get the help they need get them off that pathway and so that they don't uh go ahead with it and i think that that can be applied in the case of mass shootings as well the evidence is there to suggest this would be a very very good tool in the toolkit for prevention
0: so dr densley you said earlier that you'd receive some uh, some grant funding uh to pursue this research uh, is the The Violence Project Research Center, is that a nonprofit? I mean, can people donate to the Violence Project uh, to help you further your work? And then what other organizations or agencies are you collaborating with to ensure that the research findings you're coming up with are provided to policymakers at all levels of government uh, across our country?
1: Yeah, so the Violence Project started off essentially as a code word for a research project. Because, you know, we're academics, we're college professors. It was our way of branding, if you will, what we were doing. But it started to take on a life of its own because the work was getting so much attention, particularly in the media, but also from others. And people were reaching out to us and saying, you know, we'd like to volunteer to help uh, get this information out into the public. And have you thought about how you might be able to uh, influence policy and practice and to be honest we hadn't uh, at that time so now the violence project is a non-profit organization the funding from the national institute of justice was quite literally for the specific research project it was a two-year funding uh, cycle and, and that expired in 2020 um, and since then really we've just been a sort of uh, a volunteer-based non-profit organization that um, people can donate to. Uh, We try and go after other research grants to support projects. And we've been collaborating with, for instance, school districts in Minnesota uh, who have become interested in trying to change the culture of safety in their districts and in their school buildings. And we are working on some research projects also in collaboration with the K-12 school shooting database. It pains me to you know, have to admit that we have such a thing. Uh, School shootings are still rare in the grand scheme of things, like mass shootings are. But, uh, you know, guns are discharged in schools across the country, and uh, there is an organization that tracks that. And so we've been collaborating with them uh, on a new project, which is looking at threats of school violence and how to best appropriately respond to them. Um, And then we've been in some conversations with, you know, policymakers about are there ways we could translate some of these findings into tangible public policy? And um, you know, we'll we'll see where that takes us. I guess because uh, this is a show about public policy, but once you get into that world, it's the politics that sometimes gets in the way. <laughs> Joe,
0: Joe, and I are both well aware of that. <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, Dr. Densley, we're closing in on the end of our first show. We'd like to give you the opportunity to address anything we should have asked you today but didn't. What did we miss? The floor is yours.
1: Well, thank you. I I mean, really, it, it, there's, there's a lot to be said about this phenomenon of mass shootings. I think I want to go back to one of the earlier questions, which was to recognize that mass shootings are only a small part of the bigger gun violence problem across the United States. And when you think about the many forms of gun violence, we're talking about suicide. We're talking about everyday gun violence occurring largely in our urban areas uh, across the country. We're talking about accidental shootings. We're talking about police shootings. We're talking about um, mass shootings. We're talking about domestic violence as well with firearms. This is a multifaceted problem and in turn it needs custom solutions. There's not going to be a one size fits all um, thing that deals with all these different aspects. But we like to talk about in our work this idea of a diffusion of benefits, which is to say that if we can do something that prevents a mass shooting, can it also prevent an accidental shooting can it also prevent a suicide could it also prevent you know a firearm getting into the hands of somebody that shouldn't have it on the streets i think that's the key um, piece for the conversation here which is to say there's not going to be one solution and there's not going to be something that deals with all aspects of this we have to embrace the complexity of it is is really the bottom line. We have to be able to recognize that this is a multifaceted problem and it's going to need a multifaceted, layered solution to get us to the point where uh, we perhaps don't have to have this type of conversation again.
0: And And I think what I hear you saying there is that we also shouldn't think along the lines of, oh, there's a perfect solution and we can only make a decision or take action if it's a perfect solution, when the reality is that you're never going to have a perfect solution. And and sometimes just taking action, there's some really good benefits to that, even if it's not the perfect solution. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: It's both that and also the value of taking action. Because when we fail to take action, when we don't take action, what message are we sending to the victims and their families, to the survivors of these shootings, to our children who have to go to school worried about whether or not there will be an act of gun violence in the building, we need to send a very clear message that, that we're doing something. Because when we do nothing, that is an insult to everybody else that's out there. And it's sending a message that you can just sort of get away with this. So it's important that we do something, even if the something we do is not, as you mentioned, the perfect solution, because the truth of the matter is, there is no perfect solution. We have to be willing to to layer imperfect solutions, one on top of the other, until we get close to the end goal.
2: Our first program of public policy this week has astoundingly quickly come to an, a close. Uh, Dr. James Densley. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've given us a great deal to consider. John and I want to thank you and Dr. Peterson for your continued research on this very important topic.
0: Uh, James, if, if people wanted to read your book, The Violence Project, uh, or find more information on The Violence Project, where can they find those things?
1: So you can go to theviolenceproject.org. That is our website. There you can download... The full database, it's free, it's publicly available. You can interact with it. You can look at the findings from the research. You can fact check the things that we've been talking about <laughs> right here, right now. And then, of course, the book is available, as they always like to say, in all good bookshops. Um, and, uh, and in the book, we really try and synthesize the findings, but we really emphasize those interviews. That's what's different about the book. Yes, it has all the data and all the public policy stuff that we've been talking about today, But it also has the voices of the shooters, the survivors, the family members, the first responders. It's really their story that we're trying to tell with the book.
0: So plenty of quantitative data, but more importantly, the qualitative data that tells us kind of the why. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's it. It's a mixed methods approach. And I think that's it goes back to my point earlier. You've got to embrace the complexity. So we're trying (laughs) to do a little bit of both. That's it.
2: And, Dr. Densley, we know you are also an expert on gangs and gang violence. Perhaps we could have you on again sometime in the future to have an in-depth discussion on that topic.
1: I'd be delighted to, yeah. Great, great. Um, That's fantastic. That'd be great.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Folks, that closes this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're here every Friday morning from here on forward at 10 a.m. We're your hosts, Joe Moravchik and John Olson. Please tell your family and friends about this show. Remember, it is our hope this show will get us back to having meaningful, in-depth discussions about public policy challenges we all share.
2: We want our listeners to be informed with facts and data, to hear from policy experts, to be able to use that information to make personal decisions on these highly complex policy issues, again with the foundation of knowledge. Folks, thanks for joining us today
1: on our very first show. We hope you'll join join us again next week, next Friday at uh, 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend, and we will uh, see you all again next week.